Welcome to the All In Remote Podcast, where we believe that companies can unlock their potential, build healthy resilience, and succeed in an increasingly volatile world. We'll explore the new challenges of leadership, best practices for developing culture and trust, and the innovative tools that help make it possible. Here's your host, Kendra Kinnison. So today's episode is really a full circle moment for me. I'm pretty sure I met Dan in Batangas, the port in the Philippines in 2012, and Taylor the next year in Bangkok for over a decade. They've really been leading the way, in my mind, in unhinging work and business from geography. So Dan and Taylor, thank you so much for being here today. I think this is going to be a fun conversation. Pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. All right. So I eventually want to dig into what you're both doing now, because I think it's really interesting. But first, let's talk about how we all connected. I think this is one of the more fun origin stories I can recall. Dan, I literally think we met walking to a boat that I want to say was called a Roro in Batangas as we were going to go to Puerto Galera for a conference. That's right. It was like a figurative maiden voyage into trying to figure out how to grow a remote business. And it was really like financial necessity that led me there. I think back in the day in 2009, we were really the only people publishing content online regularly about how to grow a physical products business location independently or 100% remote. And we were doing it because we couldn't really afford web development in California where we lived at the time. And so we ended up in the Philippines where we could afford it. And just one thing led to another and traditional business advice didn't really feel like it applied to us. We couldn't find our peers. And so we invited everybody to a tropical island. If you could take three weeks out of your life to come hang out on some random island, you might be a peer. And we ended up being able to connect with people who had the same ambitions and the same vision for business. And yeah, we all kind of still, I think, remember that time, that summer is pretty magical. We met the first people that were sort of like us doing the same kind of exploring. So correct me, was it called Tropical MBA way back then? Has it always been called that? I think the podcast was called the Lifestyle Business Podcast at the time. That's right. That's right. And then you, you pivoted to Tropical MBA. But you've been podcasting... I think I started listening in 2011. So you've been podcasting since 2009? That's right. Yeah. Just no one shut us up yet. Very cool. And Taylor, I think I know a little bit of this story, but when did you enter the picture and you and Dan connect? I also was listening to podcasts. I think I started listening around the same time as you, Ken Jordan, around 2011. And I guess my motivation at the time was I kind of wanted to travel, but I also was like thinking about my career and work stuff. And so I was like excited about this idea that I could travel and some places that I always wanted to see and then also actually work on my career and develop skills professionally. That kind of drew me to Dan's podcast. And then I ended up working for the physical products business that Dan had co-founded starting in 2012. Wow. Okay. So it all came together. And then Tropical MBA, as you said, Dan hosted three or four of these that summer. I think we had 44 students or 45 students or something like that that flew out and a bunch of mentors in the group as well and fellow entrepreneurs. So it was an interesting genesis to kind of pooling together what I think is now commonly called just digital nomads. So let's just cop to the term. That's what we were. That's what we are now. We Now we call it location-independent business. But there really just wasn't a scene for it back at that time. And I think that was one of the first sort of notable events that happened. I don't see many folks tying the threads together of whether you want to call it lifestyle business or digital nomad or location independence. And then now this world 
of remote work that has become the new normal. But to me, there's absolutely a connection or, or certainly in my mind, there was the connection and the principles and the philosophies. You know, I never quite fit out of the 44 people. I think I was weird even among those 44. So I never quite fit the paradigm exactly, but really the philosophy and the principles that drove the foundations upon which you built your businesses and built your teams. I thought they were innovative then, and I think they really make sense now. Do you guys feel those are connected to what almost feels normal in the world now is just an extension of what you were already doing? Yeah, I do. I see there's a direct history. I think there's a lot of different ways. I've heard a lot of people in startup podcasts say what people in San Francisco do on the weekends for fun right now, like you'll do in 10 years. So I think the uptake for mainstream organizations is about a 15-year lag. That kind of makes sense. Maybe it would have been longer if they wouldn't have been pushed by the pandemic. But what we have seen is a lot of native remote organizations take these principles pre-COVID and have a lot of success with them. It's sometimes easy just to start fresh with a native organization rather than try to evolve a legacy organization. I've seen it now with traditional like Delaware C Corp, San Francisco type startups. They have a couple thousand employees and the transition is incredibly painful for them from a legal perspective, from a culture, political perspective. It's going to take them a while to uptake these principles and to really apply them. For a native organization, it just seems obvious if you have a quarter million dollar development budget, you set up an office in this country and you just start hiring people. It's not really possible for a lot of legacy, even technology companies. That's a great point. We actually had that conversation in one of our team meetings today where a team member was saying, why isn't everybody doing this? And I think you're right. If we were fortunate enough to natively do it, you're a step ahead. If you weren't, it's a steep hill to climb. And I think a lot of people are asking that question. COVID was a bit of a mainstream red pill moment, so to speak, for, pardon me, I just saw the matrix last week, for everybody is sort of asking the questions. And especially, I think, business leaders. Even if they can't implement the strategies, now they have an ear cocked to it and they're curious about how they can improve their organizations by aggressively internationally diversifying their companies. That's just one example. So Taylor, I want to talk about your book for a moment. Because again, some folks might think they're two different things, but I think there's very much a line in the overall principles that you talked about impacting work and jobs and then where we are today. Can you remind me, when did you write it? I'm trying to remember exactly. It came out in 2015. And the thesis was that jobs are forever going to be different. The title was The End of Jobs, which is somewhat more dramatic than the actual thesis. But the general thesis was, yeah, we're seeing this fracturing of work. So what was really interesting to me was this idea of the internet as a technology at that time and still now. I was like mostly talked about as like how it affects just consumers, right? You can buy anything you want on Amazon. You have social media, all these sorts of things. But there's also the question of like, how does it affect us as producers or as workers? And the trend that we all kind of saw already playing out was that it allowed for you to coordinate with other people in a lot lower friction way. And so that effectively, right? And so it opened up all these new possibilities of yeah, hiring people in other countries, hiring people in other time zones, being able to run, you know, when we look at a lot of these businesses that are just very niche, hiring in one geographic area to get the talents you need to run a business that's doing something very specialized has gotten harder and harder, right? The most legacy industries right there is some geographical center for it. Finance was in New York and tech was in San Francisco and logistics was in Memphis or on FedEx or, or whatever. But sort of as that started to fracture. And so that was kind of the interesting idea to me that we're seeing the internet start to impact us as producers as part of our careers into this much more sort of distributed 
system, both within companies and then across companies, right? I think a lot of these types of companies all of a sudden being able to leverage freelancers, contractors, agencies, and have a sort of much more plug and play model is just a lot easier now. And because likewise, you can find someone across the world that has you know, an extreme specialty in your niche of e-commerce or whatever you're doing. So when we caught up the other day, you shared an analogy about steam power to electric and how that framed how you thought about remote work. Would you walk us through that? Yeah, I like this idea of like, there's kind of like two types of technology. There's physical technology and social technology, right? So physical technology is like the circuit or computer chips or the steam engine or whatever. And then social technologies are like management, like Taylorism was like a study of management. And we tend to focus very much on physical technologies, but usually sort of new physical technologies create the possibility for new social technologies. And so one of the analogies I've been using for remote work is in the second industrial revolution, we had this big shift from steam power to electricity. And if you look at the way sort of factories were designed in steam power, you'd have sort of the steam engine in the middle of the factory. And then because of the way energy works, the further you moved out from sort of that so there's a central turbine kind of turning, and the further you moved away from that, energy was lost and it became less effective. So they tended to be kind of narrow, like you have a four or five story building built as close around this turbine as you could, and you had all the machines just close to the turbine. And it took about 30 years to get to what we now think of as like how a factory works, just a production line, right? Like most factories would be very large, single story, everything runs across a single line because it's much more efficient, right? You don't have to take things up and down the stairs, you can move the products across. And because electricity was very easy to move around, you bring the electricity in the plant and you can move from workstation to workstation to workstation. So you had to kind of re-optimize the whole workflow, the whole social technology of how manufacturing happened around this new idea of electricity. And so I think we're kind of in that stage for sort of the internet, technology, telecommunications, broadly, whatever you want to call it, and remote work, right? Where it's like, we're still kind of like doing it in this old way because like that's how we all kind of learned to do it and assume that's how it worked. But it actually unlocks these like new interesting possibilities. And we kind of need to think of it, okay, like given what we can do now, how does it make sense to structure a company? So we've got the new hardware, as you put it. And then now we've got to figure out the software, the new management or leadership approaches that actually make the best use of these new tools that we have. I think that is a really interesting way to think about it. And a reminder that it's not as new as it feels. All of these improvements come in cycles. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what each of you are doing now. Dan, I think the way the Tropical MBA community has evolved, I think you've come full circle too. And I'm curious how that's felt to really being like the surfer waiting for the wave. And then now there's a giant wave, you know, at your doorstep. Yeah, I'm going to jump right into that. I just want to take on the brain teaser real briefly of trying to ask ourselves like, and I think the audience could do this for themselves because there's all kinds of opportunities for your career and life. If you consider like what those implications are of the new technology now, and what we're seeing is organizations behaving a little bit more like swarms, like people are fractionalizing their productivity and they're delivering them in these very discrete increments. So I think what we're seeing is a lot more revenue per employee at these sort of companies, essentially, because they are leveraging part-time freelance. It even calls into question basic social technology like the 40-hour work week or nine to five, things like that. They've really been upended and each one of those like little technologies is a big opportunity. So I've been kind of banging my head against stuff like that. I was kind of listening to Taylor's thing thinking, I wish I had more ideas about this. So I'm just kind of tossing it out there. 
but it's an exciting time. And to have it crash on our beach, so to speak, and see a bunch of people in Silicon Valley and New York start to use terminology that we've been using for over 10 years was, I guess, a strange emotional experience. It's been surreal, like 2020 since that time. And the whole thing has been surreal. In the case of our community, it's actually been really challenging because now all of a sudden, everybody wants to come use our stuff. And it's like, so now we have to compete with these enormous companies that want to do things like offshore or use agencies of fractional services, fractional employees, remote work. And so people in our community aren't seeing like the clear advantages necessarily that they saw two and three years ago. I would say that the Dynamite Circle, your membership community that I think Mm -hmm. I've been a member of, gosh, for a decade, I think that means we're all officially old, but that we've been a part of for a while, you know, had some distinct values. And then for you as a business to kind of have come full circle to the job service, I'm curious to kind of unpack that story because I think that came from demand within the community, really. Yeah, I mean, there's two sides to it. For our clients who want to hire remote workers, now they have to compete with every company in the world instead of a small niche of people. But then as entrepreneurs, we're exposed to tons of new opportunities. And we see that by going to Dynamite Circle events or hanging out in the forum, there's a business idea that pops up every couple hours in there. And in our case, it was simply that when you're hiring for a remote organization, there's some cultural element that becomes all of a sudden very critical. Because you want to be working with your people. And it can't always be quantified in a resume. It's sort of a vibe. And so our community members would then use the forum to try and hire because they knew that friends of a friend's would be on vibe, so to speak. And they would understand things like remote work and initiative and the unique challenges of knowledge work, where, for example, defining what you're doing is essentially the hardest part about the job in most cases. Because... All that's left in a remote organization is definitional work. Because if it's defined, you're probably outsourcing it or you're hiring a freelancer or a part-time person to do it. And so the traditional notion of being an employee is really turned on its head. And it caused a problem for us because we didn't want to become a hiring resource. We wanted to be hanging out with our peers. And so we use it as an opportunity to jumpstart a hiring platform. And currently, we're competing to try to be the best remote hiring platform for bootstrap startups in the world. So give us a few stats. So we decided to start working on it about a year ago. We had it as a side project for a while where we'd post jobs out of the forum. So we recruited a CTO who was part of the community for a while, a senior recruiter. And now we have a full team of us working on it. We have about 40,000 candidate profiles on the system. We've had nearly 3 million visits in the last 12 months, and we've generated over half a million dollars in sales in our kind of first year on the job. So we're really optimistic. On the one hand, all those stats sound good to me. Like that's a good start. But also we've put a lot into it, you know, in terms of capital investment. We had a lot of unfair advantages with the community and with our history. And so I don't know how good we're doing. I'm in that startup uncertainty kind of I hope we make it. I'm nervous and paranoid about it. It's a very competitive market. And sometimes it feels like you're one straw away from the whole thing breaking. With the entrepreneurial journey, it would ever cease to be a roller coaster. I think we'd be bored with it. So (laughs) got to have the adventure. Okay, so Taylor, I never would have dreamed that our paths would have sort of converged in this way. But share what you're up to now. So I run a boutique hedge fund. And we do sort of a diversified portfolio approach. I'll skip all the jargon, but fund a fund multi-strat. It's the term. And so, yeah, we have, from a sort of remote perspective, we have six different people, three cities in the US, and one person in Africa. 
And it's been interesting, you know, finance is a very old school industry. Like, you no, know, and I, I think for Jamie Dimon from Chase made headlines because he was like, everyone's going back into the office and that's the only way this thing works and blah, blah, blah. And there's differing opinions, but in general, it's a pretty old school thing. It's been interesting for me. I'm the only person on our team that has worked remotely previously. Everyone else has pretty much always worked in an office and, and that's how it's been. So it's been kind of that. Stan was talking about not just taking people that have already done it, that's the default thing, but how do you take someone that's been sort of in this traditional work model and sort of convert into what's going on. So I think that's been interesting just seeing some of the things, like what are the things that are different? You know, I think in terms of like communication, I think it's probably been like the biggest thing in my mind, just like how we communicate and the things you take for granted in an office that get overheard or you run by someone you've remembered to mention something. Or we realized last year that two people that both had been on the team for over a year didn't know they had kids just never come up, right? We had all these like scheduled calls about our onboarding process and like, right, all these things. And like, it never came up to like, what did your daughter do this weekend? Like, oh, that's not good, right? Like, you need to have some social relationship, like how your kids and that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's what I'm up to. So I love how it's an extension of the journey of you sort of exploring, breaking the mold in jobs and then creating jobs in your company and having to find a system that works, right? Taking into consideration the new mold. I think it's really exciting and interesting. I don't think any of us would have plotted in 2012 that this would be where we'd be sitting in 2022. But yet, in hindsight, you sort of can connect the dots, as the quote goes. I'll make a prediction that the guy who wrote the end of Jobs book will one day have hundreds of employees. The ironic end game of life. Yes, I would not debate that <laughs> one bit. Karma. <laughs> So Taylor, I love your analogies and and metaphors and just frameworks for thinking. So while we've got you on, I'm going to exploit as many of those as possible. So you talked about kind of your trilemma, as you put it, of sort of the three different variables that you can toggle to varying degrees. Maybe open that up and then I'd love to get Dan's thoughts on that too. Remind me what they were. I think you said it was decentralization and centralization, security and scalability. Oh, yes. Thank you. We were talking and I was actually thinking... So this is in like distributed systems engineering, which is now in vogue because of all the blockchain crypto stuff. They have sort of like there's like a trilemma where you can either get decentralization, you can get sort of pick two or three decentralization, security and scalability. So if you want decentralization and scalability, you get kind of like an unsecure environment. If you want scalability and centralization, or scalability and decentralization, or security decentralization, you get less scalability. If you think about what remote work is, distributed systems engineering is actually like a reasonable parallel, right? Talking about how do you get machines to work together that are distributed around the world? How do you get people to work together that are distributed around the world? So I think that's like, I guess one of my just observations is you look at some of these automatic, as an interesting example of like fully remote businesses that are like really at scale, right? And they're like thousands of employees. So they like for scalability opted for sort of decentralization by people over the world, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, the question in my is like, what is the cost to, and I mean, maybe in like remote work, it's like efficiency or something. Kind of my general observation is be like, in-person is good for kind of creation and remote is good for like iteration, right? Like you have remote, you have some space to work, you can kind of like work through things. But you know, think of it like in, again, like engineering terms, like the latency, right? Like how long it takes you to ping another person and get that ping back is a lot longer, right? Like I sent a message this morning to someone and they'd already gone offline for the day and I won't get a message 24 hours back. If they're in the office next to me, it would have taken 30 seconds, right? So you incur some cost there. And so I think it's going back to the analogy of like electricity and how factories are organized. It's like 
how do you structure the company around those things? For certain things structured in time zones, I think like a lot of remote businesses are doing this like one or two or three, four in-person things a year. So that what you do, you fly the whole team in and you do like two weeks a year where like everyone's in the same place. And that's where you have certain types of projects. So that's where we do like the brainstorming, get the thing done. And then everyone's iterating on it six months kind of thing. So those are sort of like the interesting experiments to me that I'm excited to see where that goes. Again, I feel like there's some trade-offs there. But there's probably also like a lot of sort of like free lunch optimizations just from getting better, like figuring out how this works. Maybe four weeks in person plus three months alone. I mean, that's actually like superior for most businesses. That actually seems like super plausible to me if you structure the work right. So Dan, do you see any other kind of trends in the trade-offs or the way businesses are thinking about this? The way I think about it is for every new tech thing that transitions into older school businesses, you know, a lot of the objections folks have is like, well, people at grocery stores aren't going to work like that, or still the vast majority of the economy still works on these principles. I think a lot of these new principles will stay native. So you look at it with crypto, for example, a lot of people object and say, well, I can't go to Subway yet and buy stuff with Bitcoin, which in some Subways I think you can. But the idea is like, well, we don't want to buy your sandwiches with crypto. We're in the crypto space now. So we're going to buy companies. We're going to hire people. We're going to build assets and we're going to stay native. So I think you look at that with the web, for example, you know, we stay on the web. We don't necessarily need to translate everything back into an industrial space, a real estate space, a national space. Like there's things that are going to be post real estate, post sovereign. And I think that digging around in there and looking for trends is sort of what I do as a hobby. I think that's what's connected Taylor and I over the years too, is just banging our head against this stuff and trusting your instinct when you see something interesting. All right. I want to dive into some questions. Rachel's got a few and then the rest of the audience, get your questions ready and we'll bring you to the stage. But Rachel, I want to bring you up and ask both of your questions. I think they're fantastic. Hi, Dan. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Rachel. Hello. hello. This is really cool. Thank you guys so much. My first question is, how do you see the metaverse and other VR tech contributing to the remote workplace? And do you see that becoming sort of a prominent trend in the coming years? I'll start. I don't have a super good answer. I think like the interesting promising to me going back to the analogy of you think about latency and bandwidth, right? Like when you're connecting the internet, you're late, you know, how fast can you ping things and get a response back? And then you're then it's like how much like raw data can you get? Like the maybe promising interesting thing to me about and I think that's like the hard stuff with remote compared to in-person is you have both like slower latency, like it takes longer to get things back, and then just less bandwidth, right? In general, like tech or a video call is just a lower bandwidth medium than like an in-person thing where you pick up more on body language or tone of voice or something. So like the VR metaverse stuff, maybe that's the free lunch or something, right? Like if you can replicate a lot of that through something like that, now all of a sudden the in-person stuff is very different. And I've seen some interesting people doing like, you have like a screen and you like drag what part of the office you want to be in at a given time. So it's like, if you're kind of like doing emails, you can like drag yourself over by the water cooler. And that like gives you access to like different chat groups or different sort of things. Or it's like, you're in like water cooler where you're just like answering some emails. And like, if something interesting pops up, like you can jump into the conversation or I'm like designing a product now. And like, I don't want anybody to talk to me. And I'm going into like one of the conference rooms to lock myself away and sort of do not disturb and no notifications. So I think those are some interesting things. Does everybody remember when they were first handed like a key card to the corporate headquarters? It's like we're taking it to a whole nother level. 
Rachel, I would be curious if you had any thoughts. I'm personally not super well-versed. The metaverse is, a, is an enormous concept. You're going to see legacy organizations definitely employ the concept that Taylor just talked about. As an events company, we have an events company as well. Pressured all the time by our customers and clients to employ more VR events. A lot of people have started to go to them now. But I think with a lot of these sort of next-gen native companies, you're going to see less of it. It's going to be a different paradigm of work. So you look at a company like Automatic, who's a client of ours. A lot of people will object and say, well, yeah, it's easy for Automatic to be a large-scale remote company because it's just a bunch of code nerds dropping in GitHub updates and then the company just grows magically somehow. That's very strange. And I would submit that that's going to become less and less strange, that Automatic is actually how people are going to organize their work lives together. Like I imagine a world, Rachel, where instead of like applying to jobs and developing a personal relationship and doing interview process and all the stuff on Dynamite Jobs, you'd actually just log in and do work. And then you would get paid in a currency that you want to accrue. And then you can do business with that currency with people who have visibility on the work that you're doing. So now you might want to duplicate that work and sell it to many different people. So I don't think that like the traditional idea of like overlays on reality would apply much in that situation. Interesting. So for folks that are like we said, legacy, let's call it pre-pandemic, are not native remote. We think VR might have some implications for letting them hang on a bit longer, but native remote probably would skip it all together. You're thinking and come up with a whole different way of thinking about it. It's one guess. I like it. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> all right, Rachel, the second question I think is really good too. And these are perfect folks to ask. Yes. Yeah, so it seems like you guys have sort of embraced the adventurous remote work kind of lifestyle. How do you sort of maintain structure in your day when you're working remotely and building your business and have all these goals while you're having these epic adventures? I guess my day-to-day is pretty boring. There's probably a quote I got from Dan, but it's keep your day-to-day boring so you can keep your ideas wild or something kind of thing. And so I think I kind of like more or less work nine to seven-ish most days. I take like a lunch and a workout break somewhere in there usually. So I kind of end up structuring my days around fairly standard work hours. I do like, I mean, for me, like being able to get out of the office at four o'clock and like go for a workout. Dan, how do you think about that? I love the question because I just feel like there's just so much we could talk about it for days on end. So one way to look at it as a founder is that that's not really the structure that matters. Like the structure that matters is product market fit and finding enough margin to pay talented operators to manage and evolve and innovate on that platform. And that's really an all-out war in terms of time management. Part of the reason these digital nomad adventures were strategically interesting is that you were completely isolated from all of life's traditional responsibilities. Like, I got invited to so-and-so's wedding. I got to go see this person on this weekend. My friends want me to come do this. And if you're living a middle-class lifestyle and you want to graduate to the wealth class... Those are precisely the kinds of things that will distract you and get in your way and prevent you from pouring all of your personal resource into something that could make a big difference. So I think part of my early days adventures were really about just focusing 100% on work and trying to meet the people who did that as well and what it actually meant for them to have done that, to build relationships with them and to use some of that time and location flexibility to put myself in those rooms. But nowadays... Rachel, it's a grab bag. I mean, I don't really have a good answer. I don't know if I'm a particularly good time manager, but building a great team is probably the hack there. For me, it's like also coming to terms with your personal quirks. And so for me, I'm pretty social and agreeable. 
So for me, like having daily meetings with my team and like connecting with them emotionally and fulfilling my promises to them is probably the easiest way for me to stay on task and productive. What I think is interesting is that remote work gives us each, I think, more flexibility to be in our strengths and to be in our preferences. It doesn't force the adventure or it can really be whatever flavor each of us wants it to be. You know, Taylor even said, is this audio or video? Because I just worked out. And I was like, I think that's exactly (laughs) the point that it's the middle of a work day and you just got a workout in is sort of the point of why this can work. It's much more optimized. And we're seeing a lot more tendency for people to optimize their input to a particular company and then do some amazing things with their spare time, which Rachel, back when I had a more traditional job in corporate America, was really impossible. Like There wasn't enough time on the side between a commute, which was an hour and 15 minutes each way, and just the responsibilities of upholding a high-pressure job. I couldn't find the time. Stephanie's got a question with another angle. I'm curious to get both your thoughts on this as well. Stephanie, I'm going to bring you to the stage too. Hello. So my first question was, first of all, awesome companies. I had a conversation with someone who's a strong advocate for in-office work. He stated he believes that in-office employees will always have an upper hand on career progression because they are always seen. I know how I answered it, but how would you have answered this comment? And how does your company vision align to that solution? This is such an active issue right now. So many people in my network, I've heard so many different ideas about this, Stephanie. People that got displaced from the office and now like they're trying to build a team in the office and their team is exposed to like the political machinations of other people. I've always thought, man, I really got ahead by personal relationships. And so I need to be in that room and build a relationship. And then I've heard from people, well, that's because it's a good old boys network. And because the good old boys were promoting you because you look like them. And so now I can get ahead because I'm being judged on my work. So I've heard all different kinds. I don't know what to think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What's your perspective on that? I am totally with you. I worked for a corporate bank and they were very boys club. You know, if, if you're seeing the butts in the seats, then, you know, you're seen as a valuable employee. But I measure success and I'm sure our team can agree, not based on where you are, but what you bring to the table. And I think that if you are really committed to growing your company and nurturing the success of your team, then that should be a priority, not location. Yeah. Specifically, a lot of listeners have written to me and said, I didn't like to go out drinking with everybody after work because I had a life. (laughs) (laughs) And like, I was the guy that went out drinking. So, you know, (laughs) it feels to me like at least in our world where things are so niche and it's very meritocratous, or at least there's like these very niche communities is that people have the opportunity to find that company message that really resonates with them. That's what our company looks like. It's like super quirky and everybody sort of is attracted to the same sorts of philosophies. And we don't require like a lot of in-person because like intellectually we're so on the same beat. And that's a really interesting opportunity for me personally. Like, Earlier in my career, when we were geographically constrained, it felt like we weren't really talking about work so much as hierarchies and politics. And so there's always the actual thing in and of itself. And this might just be a function of larger organizations. We never really were talking about brass tacks, so to speak. We were always talking about some kind of organizational, political, vague thing that tired me out. So maybe that's part of the reason I went and started a business. So Taylor, you mentioned your company, you were the first person that had worked remote before, dealing with folks that had always worked in an office before. Have you had questions or thought about navigating this? Yeah, I guess the way I think about it, or the way I've been thinking about it, is it's like, 
it's, I don't know, if you think about like companies and as like evolution or something, it's just like, if you're like promoting people based on their in-house FaceTime politics, it's probably going to be a dysfunctional organization. And like, it's probably going to end badly at some point, you know, it's right. like there's lots of old school businesses that like will survive for decades on dysfunctional politics and whatever, but that's going to like play out just because the people that want to be judged on their work and do good work will go to companies where they're judged on their work and they can do good work. And like those companies are likely to sort of win in the long run, right? Like the steam factories didn't like figure it out, right? They just got outcompeted because the new factory model could make you search and higher quality to lower price and that kind of thing. So I guess that's kind of how I thought about it. And then you know, the way we try to approach it is sort of in that same thing. I think a lot of trying to structure the communication just around like making it visible for everyone to show their work. And also I think kind of encourages you to like brag a little bit about what they're doing or just not even necessarily brag, but just like be public about it, right? Like if we had someone who just spent a day doing like a revamped onboarding guide kind of thing and she didn't share with anyone and like we finally looked at it, like, this is great. You should tell us about this because like this is great work and that's beneficial to the company and we want to reward that kind of stuff. So I think just trying to make it so that management or the people have visibility into what's going on and can like judge people based on the merits of their work, right? This person that's quiet and doesn't say a lot, but is like heads down and getting stuff done. How can we see that such that they're being rewarded? And the person that's loud and playing politics and is not the person we want. As a leader, and particularly, it sounds like this person Stephanie was talking to is maybe a leader or manager at another company. It's kind of a be careful what you reward because you're going to get more of it, right? So if you reward butts in seat time at an office, but not necessarily production, then okay, you're going to get plenty of that, but you may not get the production. Whereas if you're careful to measure and reward and facilitate sharing of things that really matter, then you'll get more of that. I think that's an interesting take is that as a leadership, you really set the culture of what you reward. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Stephanie. Great questions. All right. Well, we'll wrap it up. Thank you guys for your time and your friendship, all the wisdom that you've shared with me really over the last decade. I was telling the team before this conversation that it certainly changed the trajectory of my life. And I think as you learn more about our company, you'll see many of your philosophies are in our DNA. So thank you for this conversation and really thank you for all that you've poured into and shared in this space. I think it really does make an impact. Thanks, Kendra. Thanks so much. It's our pleasure.